Welcome to The Real Look, brought to you by Keller Williams Realty, Northwest Region. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. Today, we discuss some of the trending issues in real estate, and we get to talk with our special guest, Lewis Howard, with Keller Williams Olympic in Squim, Washington. First, however, let's take a look at some of the big stories in real estate this past week. Well, Chase, we predicted it last week that uh, the Fed was going to raise the interest rates by 75 basis points, and I guess that's exactly what they did. And by the way, that's the largest raise in rates since 1994. You know, just further evidence that the uh, central bank is laser focused on slowing inflation. There was a talk there for a minute that they might even go a full point. (laughs) Now they didn't. They went the three quarters of a point that a lot had been predicting. And some of the impact that that had on mortgage rates had already been realized to some degree because they had been saying that they're going to continue to raise the rate. So I don't think anyone was surprised by that. I'm a little surprised that it's the highest since 1994, only because I just didn't know that. Any research would have found that out. But you said it perfectly, Bruce. It is further evidence that they're serious about getting a handle on inflation, which, as we've talked about, is the thing we're most concerned about and the effects that it can have on the real estate industry. Well, and what's interesting here, right, the federal funds rate doesn't directly dictate mortgage rates, but it does steer market activity, right, to create higher rates and reduce demand. When you look at what's happened this year, the Fed has raised that rate by 175 basis points. However, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage has risen by nearly 300 basis points. And again, that's the mortgage industry pricing in this. And I think, you know, the Fed is being smart about this, right? One thing the market doesn't like is surprises. So obviously, they're leaking enough information. So the market's getting comfortable with the idea that, okay, we're going to see a 75 basis point rise. So let's go and build that in and just move forward. I think the other thing that's going to be interesting, though, right, and this is the painful side of this. And, you know, we're talking macroeconomics right now. However, what we know is those macroeconomics affect the family and affect individuals. So what you see, a $300,000 mortgage the payment now is about $1,800 versus back in December of last year, that same $300,000 mortgage would have cost the borrower $1,265. 50% increase inside of six months. And that's certainly going to have a painful impact on those families that are trying to buy that first home specifically. We're going to see people actually decide to sit it out and wait and see what happens. I don't think we've seen the end of it. In fact, the Fed has forecast that they're going to continue to do this. So it'll be interesting to see whether next month we see another 75 basis point rise in that rate again. If inflation starts to react, then we may see a lower number. You know, we talk about this being a predictor of what's coming. Fannie Mae has cut its 2022 industry forecast yet again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Initially, their forecast was that we would see a total of $2.8 trillion in mortgage loans closed this year. They then dropped that down to $2.7 trillion, and they just came out that they expect now it's going to be around $2.2 trillion. Should be no surprises there, right? Yeah, that slowing or cooling, if you will, of the market is exactly what they're after. And it's what you just described, Bruce. It's some of those buyers deciding to sit it out for now. As we've talked about before, these projections should get more and more accurate because they get more and more data to work with, right? So it's not uncommon for them to revise their forecasts as things change. But I certainly think that if you're paying attention at all, you're feeling the cooling. 
you're feeling the slowing down of the market and probably more so some than others. We've been talking about this for a while, and there's just more further evidence that the winds of shift and the winds of change are definitely blowing out there in the market. It's already beginning to have impacts right on the industry. We saw last week that both Compass and Redfin announced significant layoffs of their workforce. Compass revealed that they were cutting 10% of their workforce. And by the way, they also shuttered a title and escrow startup that they acquired a year and a half ago. Redfin also announced that it was eliminating hundreds of jobs. And between the two companies, we've seen nearly a thousand real estate professionals, which are likely to be newly out of work by the end of last week. So I think this is an interesting time. Compass even stopped trading on the NASDAQ for 45 minutes or so, Bruce, which is not a very common thing, at least not to my knowledge. So there's certainly something happening there, and they're definitely feeling the effects of what's happening in the marketplace, trying to get ahead of it as best they can. The market is reacting with their stock price. Both of those companies' stock prices are drastically below where they either came to market or have traditionally traded. One of the reasons that we've talked a little bit about, Bruce, is when everything seems to be going well and the tide is high, oftentimes Wall Street will reward just pure growth or even pure revenue growth. But when things start to tighten up, capital starts to tighten up, they go back to the fundamentals, as we've talked about, one being profitability (laughs) and making sure that every dollar that they're spending of that capital is being spent wisely. So here are these companies trying to make some pretty drastic moves in order to get a handle on that. And, you know, those are real jobs. Those are real people that are affected. And I'm certain that we will not see the last of these type of moves, these type of decisions, as all companies try to get a handle on what's to come and getting their expenses and their budget right. Those are never easy decisions. And I'm sure that these were not easy decisions either. It's a pretty big impact to those folks. In addition, Compass closed eight offices in California as well. We've got to get real, got to get right when we're in a shifting market. The truth is you've got to get your expenses under control. In these brokerage businesses, we know there are two main expenses, which actually account for most everything. What are they, Chase? They're space and salaries. Absolutely. So I can see why they would be cutting space, closing offices. They've got some very expensive leases. And then in addition to that, they're laying off people to cut salaries. As long as we've been in real estate, this last couple of years has been really the first time that companies have been using stock as a way to attract people to their company. It's fascinating to watch now, you know, Compass IPO'd just over a year ago, and they came out at about $20 a share. As of this recording, they're trading at $3.80 a share. So I imagine that some of those people who were lured over there by the attractive idea of owning stock in the company have actually seen that those offers are worth a lot less now than what they were when they most likely took them. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine, Bruce. That's tough for those folks making big life decisions on some of those projections or forecasting of what those things might be worth. And I can see where that would be a challenge as well, just from a cultural standpoint. You've joined this company in part because of these stock options that are now worth pennies on the dollar of when you receive them. Even if you don't feel like blaming anyone, which isn't always the healthiest thing we can do, it still isn't probably the best feeling on the planet. Like you said, this is kind of one of the first times we've seen that being done more so than not in the industry. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how some of that shakes out, particularly going into a tough market. The other piece to keep in mind as realtors, 
stay focused on the fundamentals. I mean, do your business, right? And do it well, regardless of what the market gives us all, you can go make your business and build your wealth, by the way, even in a down market. Like you said, the fundamentals, we think of it as leads, listings, leverage, for example. And I think you've got a story to share with us that demonstrates kind of a move on Keller Williams' part to go back to providing some of those and supporting with providing some of those basics to our agents. I'm really excited about this one, Chase. Keller Williams announced last week that they're partnering with a home selling program called 72 Sold. Our friend Greg Haig down in Phoenix, Arizona, has built this amazing program that is really designed to list and sell homes within 72 hours. Greg and Gary have come together and struck a deal where Keller Williams agents across the globe will receive 72 sold training for a referral fee. And they'll be able to use all the systems that Greg has developed to actually go and grow their businesses. And I think this is an exciting time for this to roll out. Oh, I agree, Bruce. We know that listings are king in this business and they always have been and they always will be. And yet they become even more valuable and important to the foundation of our businesses during a shifting market, right? It's a fundamental of being successful in the industry. So to have an opportunity like this, to get to partner with 72 Sold and Greg and try to connect our agents to that valuable resource is a a privilege. We know that it works because it's been working extremely well for him. We've actually tested it in some Keller Williams offices already and it's working extremely well. And so I'm excited for more offices and more agents to have the opportunity to connect to this benefit it couldn't be better timing, in my opinion. We get the benefit of Gary Keller, you know, having been in the business over 40 years, right? Having seen these cycles before and realizing the need to double down on training, right? The right training for the right moment in the cycle and bringing additional resources. Because at the end of the day, right, our offices aren't successful if our agents aren't. So our offices are here to support our agents. At the regional level, we're not successful if our offices aren't and our agents aren't. And Keller Williams International really gets to lift us all up and support us. And I I think that this is really a smart move. And by the way, Chase, this is the first of many what we call MOFAs, right? Making an offer for instant response that we're going to be bringing out here over the next few months. Yep. Great opportunity. Well, when we come back, we'll meet Lewis Howard. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, The Real Look is supported by Keller Williams Luxury. Known for their distinct approach to real estate, Keller Williams Luxury has a reputation built around tailored experiences, loyal clientele, and success stories beyond compare. With Keller Williams Luxury selling more luxury real estate than any other company, these agents truly stand in a class of their own. Explore the opportunities of becoming a Keller Williams Luxury agent at luxury.kw.com today. G'day, Lewis. Welcome to The Real Look. Where does today's podcast find you? I'm at the Old Spaghetti Warehouse building uh, down in Seattle, which is a landmark, and they turned into an office, and so we uh, hang out here with uh, the team and the crew. Okay, fabulous. Well, we all have a journey. We have a life before real estate. So what was your journey to getting into the industry? I was in media and broadcasting. I worked for several affiliate network shows and produced newscasts and television production. 
I wanted to get into sales. My first foray in real estate was actually in property management, apartment development. So I worked for a developer. I was just excited that, you know, it was new buildings, new apartments, just the ability to be able to work with people and each experience with each customer, client, tenant was always different. So uh, when did you get into sales, into real estate sales? So my first interest into sale was the same apartment developer that I worked with decided to convert his apartments to condominiums for sale. I uh, had just gotten a real estate license just because it was required as part of my job. And so we had one of the first new construction condominium conversions in downtown Bellevue. 122 units at that time was valued at $20 million project and had no idea what I was doing. Walk us through how you got an education on the fly in real estate sales. Just being simple and human. A lot of the owners would be first-time home buyers, and I would just say, I'm new at this. The company at the time was Windermere, and so they gave me some additional support. But it was a lot to take on, but uh, it turned out phenomenal. And what did that lead you to? What happened next? It just kind of led to opportunity after opportunity, and they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was breaking barriers as an African-American. I was the first top new construction professional salesperson in our region, first executive, first sales manager. So it was a lot of firsts. And I appreciate you sharing that, Lewis, because what was your mindset? I mean, did you set out to break those barriers? No, I set out to pay my bills. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I didn't really understand real estate. I mean, I just knew that my job was to facilitate getting people to buy, I was really kind of immune to it. I was just not aware of what I was doing at the time. It would be sometime later that people said, did you know? But no, I didn't set out to pioneer. I really was just wanted to be one of the agents, one of the team, one of the individuals. So You took a different path than a lot of realtors in that you moved into leadership. What was your thought process behind that? I wanted to be able to duplicate myself. Because while I was a good individual agent and I had all these different projects that I've been successful with, I could only be one place at one time. So what I learned is in leadership that I could duplicate myself through other people's efforts. And that was really what inspired me to become a leader. And I watched other leaders at the time that were highly successful. And I thought, if they can do it, I can do it. I can morph myself into where I could have multiplicity in terms of reaching you know, multiple clients, multiple builders, and multiple projects. Tell us about that transition, Lewis. I think those of us who have been on both sides of the aisle, sales, then leadership, realize that there are some similarities. But there's also some pretty stark differences. What was your experience like? What did you realize making that leadership transition? Yeah, I would say the biggest one was I became the senior executive for a luxury home builder in the region. Essentially, I went from being in production to now being the vice president of a very large company, luxury high-end homes, 15 different neighborhoods. And I had peer relationships where we worked together and all of a sudden I became their boss. And I had to move in from being friends to now leader. And that was probably the biggest challenge to get people now to follow me, follow the direction, follow the strategies. That kind of grew me up really quickly. I love that you brought this up because I agree with you. It's leading versus peers is a totally different relationship. What did you have to modify or what did you have to change in your behavior or how you work with your cohort? Well, I think the thing that they had to see that 
the ideas and the strategies that I was coming up with would benefit all of us. I remember one of my first motivational speeches where I walked in the room and I said, look, at the end of the day, if we don't sell houses here, we're all out of business. We're all replaceable. And that includes me. We need to either all work together or all fail together. I helped them see that it was something in it for them as well. How long were you in the real estate side of the industry, Lewis? That was kind of your first experience. How long did you do that? Well, my first 10 years, I worked as an agent. And then the next 10 years, it was more getting into management and leadership. And then that third tier is where I became more of an ambassador to the business. I became more of a leader of leaders. I created a group called the New Home Council. And the New Home Council was made up of builders, professionals, marketers, which was out of necessity, by the way, was doing the downturn of the recession. And so we all needed to band together and figure out how to stay in business. And so many of us were in charge of development companies, and we just needed to kind of create a consortium to how do we stay in business? And so that was really the third tier now to become now this ambassador to where I'm leading people that have been in the business equally or longer than I have. Now, you've been in real estate for what, 28 years? 28 years. So you've seen some cycles. I have seen a few things. I always say that the movie is the same. The characters just change. So I don't get rattled when I see change and things like that coming just because it's inevitable. In fact, I like to study history. I was looking at the history of retail last night at the Neiman Marcus. They started their business and it was 1907. It was one of the worst years ever. And then they would go into the Great Depression. So, you know, I truly was like, you know what? There's always good years and there's always bad years. You just have to learn how to operate within those. You know, with over half of the realtors in the industry, having been in the industry for 10 years or less, they've not seen the part of the cycle that we're about right. to enter. So if you were to give them some advice, what advice would you give them about a shifting market? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because for a period of time, I worked for a little startup company at the time called Redfin. And I swear I was the oldest guy next to Glenn, who was the CEO, was the oldest guy there, right? And so you couldn't talk to any of these people past three years. They would just check out on you. Right. So I had to learn how to talk to them in a language because they're all tech guys. And many of them were building platforms for real estate and never sold real estate. So one of the things I talked to them, number one, you only get one time to make a reputation. That's it. You don't get a second, third time. So you have to do well with making that reputation. Number two, it was you're only as good as the relationships you build. The key was build those relationships, protect those relationships, because you never know when you're needing. I was on a call for affordable housing, and the guy goes, you're just a guy we'd love to work with. And I thought, you know, this is why for 25 years I've taken care of my reputation, because I never know when I might need it, and here's the time. So that is tried and true, no matter what generation you are. That reputation and relationships, I think, wins today. How do you parlay that in a shifting market where, you know, we start to see inventory increase, we see price uh, increases slow down? So it's a different skill set. There's no doubt about that. But how do you parlay that reputation and relationship as you go into a shifting market? You know, I worked down in Southern California's market for a while to do some development work with builders. And one of the things I learned in California was very transactional. When we get done with this deal, we're done. But on the other hand, with Canada, it was very relationship driven. In a good market or a bad market, I still need those relationships. 
if I've been transactional, as I see agents right now, a lot of agents have been transactional. They just want to get their deal done on behalf of the seller or the buyer, and they don't really care whatever collateral damage they leave behind. Well, that's not building relationships. So when the shoe gets on the other foot and it's slow, you have a harder time because you don't have those relationships that you can go into. We can be competitive and still be friendly. One of my mentors said this to me, Bruce, he said, look, I may not eat 12 shrimp. I may only eat nine shrimp, but I'm always going to eat shrimp. Find a way that you can always do business. It may be more or less, but you can always do business. And the thing was, it's just don't be transactional. It may work for a while, but it won't work over the long term. And Lewis, you have a couple of key relationships and some key organizations that you're involved in and part of today inside of the industry. Can you share what those are with us and what you're excited about in your involvement? Yeah. So one of the things that I did years ago at the turn of the recession, I had put all my eggs in one basket with one company. I was an executive with this company. I had a great salary, private office, all the things that you know one would look at as success. And then it all fell apart. You know, I looked up and I was $2 million in debt. The company was over leveraged and all of a sudden the wheels were just falling off this bomb-proof bus. One of the things I said to myself is, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? I reinvented myself to be where I could offer services on multiple platforms to individuals. In other words, I would take my gift, my talents, my experience that I've learned, and I would spread that to different areas. And one was in the area of working with less fortunate families, housing. And so I started many years ago volunteering at Mary's Place, a millionaire club. Those led to opportunities to actually help them with housing. And so they started setting up housing for people that have been homeless and in transition and things like that. Seattle came up with a two-year housing program. What it's led to really is a, a pretty substantial opportunity to work with Catholic Housing Services. And Catholic Housing Services is the largest provider of affordable housing in the Northwest. I think we have over 62 buildings and 3,500 families in our buildings. You know, even though I had a full-time thing in real estate that I also wanted to do. And so I worked with them initially in property management and portfolio. But that vision of seeing people own kind of came back again. Remember when I said I love working with people? And so it came back to why are these people just renting? I understand where they've come from, but why are they just renting? And a lot of them were families of color. They had different barriers and things that had kind of limited them. But I just came with this vision of, I think we can help these people own homes. I drafted a plan and created a program called the Home Bridge Program. And then at the same time was developing a larger move in the region coming out of Washington, D.C., where they wanted to build 3 million homes for 3 million people over the next 10 years. It's become a big drive here now to get families of color, BIPOC communities involved. And so my job is to look within our portfolio and find those families that are earning enough money that could qualify for a home loan. Take them to the process of getting into education, credit, financing, just all of the different phases of helping them get to the point where they can actually literally start building wealth for themselves and their families. Chase and I talk about this a lot on this podcast, right? The impact that home ownership can have on not just generational wealth, but multi-generational wealth. Absolutely. Everybody deserves that opportunity. It is the American dream. So I I really appreciate that. I mean, you're almost equally involved with uh, diversity initiatives as well, aren't you? We were designed to be a company 
just to help people get off the street and get into homes. And so I'm looking at what I do on one side of, hey, maybe I'm doing a multi-million dollar retail deal over here. And the other side, I'm helping somebody get on a $500 a month lease. But the principles were the same. It was still helping and serving just in a different way. And so now I'm able to use all the relationships I've built over 25 years. I'm literally teaching them how to do the real estate portion of it, because most of them are in the nonprofit. And uh, we're working with builders now that are jumping over. Governor Inslee approved an $800 million affordable housing program that we are participating in as well. And we're going to be developing properties. One of the things that hasn't come out in the news, you guys will be the first to hear about it, but there are several parishes that will be shutting down and merging, and we will be taking those properties and actually develop them into multifamily and single-family properties for families to actually own. Well, Chase, we've always said the real look is where you get the real news. So uh, you heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Love that, Lewis. (laughs) So, Lewis, you've sort of done full circle a little bit, right? You started out in property management, then got into real estate sales, then moved into leadership. And now in the last 12 months or so, you've launched a team. What lessons would you say that you've bought from your leadership experience that has helped you go build this team and get it off the ground quickly? I would say number one is vision. People get in a ditch if you don't have vision. Where do we want to be? Where do we want to take this? And that helps people decide if they want to be partners with you in that endeavor. I'm a freak study of biographies. So I studied Howard Schultz when he first started Starbucks. And one of the things that he wanted to do was take Starbucks from this you know, this boutique little company down in Pike Place Market. And he wanted to create this global customer experience that literally you could go into Starbucks and you would have an experience with your community and your neighbor. Well, you know, that's common today, but it wasn't common back then. In all the things that I've done where we have been successful is because we created an experience. That's one of the things I wanted to instill in our team is everywhere we go, let's create an experience. Let's create a memorable experience so the person wants to come back and have another cup of coffee with us or they want to come back and do another sale with them. And that all starts with, you know, the coaching and training of the individuals that are going out there. So I think that's one thing that I've learned over the years, having that vision and honestly, patience. I've been on eight number one teams in 20 years. And so when you've been at that level, you know what it's like to have success. You've tasted it. I've been there. I've walked across the stages. I've picked up the awards. I know what it's like, but it also makes impatience because I'm looking and I said, okay, how come you guys don't have 20 sales right now? What's going on? I really have to have patience and do what I call crawl, walk, run. And that's taking people to those three phases of how they get to success. You're going to crawl, you're going to walk, and then you're going to run. And that helps me know where I am. So I don't come in expecting everybody to be at a run. I know that some people are going to be a crawl, some can be able to walk, and some can be able to run. And that's helped me coach a lot better because I'll just tell you, I blew up a lot of people early on in my executive years. I had a short fuse. I would fire you at the drop of the hat. Get out. Here's your license. Goodbye. Probably getting older helps with that and a little maturity. So, <laughs> so Lewis, what are you most excited about as you look forward into the future, right? You've got these organizations that you're deeply involved with and, and sales and the team. When you look on the horizon, what excites you the most? We talk a lot about it, legacy. One of the things that I noticed in our business, which is why I created the New Home Council many years ago, is we didn't leave much of a legacy. 
most people came into real estate and they had their years of success. They retired, they moved to Arizona, Florida, and that was it. That was the end of the story. They didn't leave much behind. That was one of the things I was very excited about joining Keller is because you know, you could hear the word legacy from day one, right? The legacy through profit sharing, the legacy through building and networking and growing and expansion. That's all legacy stuff, right? So to me, that is what I want to be able to leave is leave an organization or a company after I'm done that still goes on and carries on that vision. When I am done with Catholic housing, I want that program to run for another 20 years and see 10,000 people have gotten in the houses because of something we started. Or see a 360 real estate over in Dubai, around the world, right, where it's now grown because other people have gotten that. And you know that you started that from a little place in Seattle. And now you can look and say, I truly have made a generational impact. That's awesome. Love that. Well, Lewis, I like to ask everyone. Based on what you know today, if you were to go back and talk to your younger self and give yourself advice, what advice would you give? Not to be so hard on myself. Because I broke so many barriers, I lived in a fishbowl. And I always didn't feel comfortable in my skin because I always felt like somebody's watching. And I always had to double perform to be half as good. I would go back to that 28-year-old and just say, hey, you know what? Chill out. Because... Destiny will come no matter what. People who love you will stay and those who don't will go and they need to go anyway. So don't worry about those. I just want to say thank you. I mean, there's been a lot of sage advice. I know our listeners are going to get a tremendous amount of value, Lewis, and and thank you for that. If anybody has referrals for the Seattle market, look no further than the 360 real estate team. We'll actually have Lewis's contact information in the show notes. Congratulations on all the success. And we really appreciate all that you do for so many people. You've made a difference. And trust me, you're leaving a legacy. After a short message, Bruce and I break down all the lessons from today's interview. We are supported by Keller Williams Command. With Command, you'll take your real estate team into the future with access to manage every aspect of your business in one easy-to-use dashboard. With full CRM capabilities, marketing tools, transaction management, reporting, and more, Command is your one-stop shop to help you cultivate a lifetime relationship with your clients from lead to close. Explore your options at technology.kw.com today. Well, that was a treat, Chase. Lewis brings so much experience to the table, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, Bruce. And you can just hear that in the interview, just the wisdom bombs that he was dropping on the audience and us too. And you don't just get that overnight, right? You get that from a career's worth, lifetime's worth of experience. And you can see that as he kind of shared his journey in these different stages going through property management and then sales and then leadership and then really ambassadorship, leading leaders. That is, uh, that is quite the track record. I love that progression too, right? We talk about it. Gary wrote about it in The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. He put in the form of a pyramid and the base of the pyramid is earn a million dollars, right? What do you need to do in order to do that? And then it's net a million, right? And there's a big difference between earning a million and netting a million. Then it's receive a million. So how do you receive a million dollars passively? And then ultimately you get to the pinnacle, which is how do you give away a million dollars a year? 
And by the way, it doesn't necessarily even happen to be in cash. And you can see the difference that Lewis is making with his efforts with the Catholic housing program and the things that he's doing in the diversity arena. That is absolutely, I mean, that's going to be millions of dollars worth of value that he's uh, getting to give away. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, one of the things that I can hear throughout his journey is he's really good at taking his experience and his success and learnings and opportunities and parlaying that into the next thing. Some of those things get attached, right? So he's talking about Homebridge and how that gets attached to the Catholic housing services. So you take these people from the streets to renting to then eventually some of them into homeownership. That's such a cool progression that you're right. You can't really even attach a number to that. And that's the legacy piece that Lewis shared. He was so passionate about at this point in his career, looking out around what legacy is he leaving and how is he doing that? And who might it impact? You know, that's just such a powerful way of thinking about how you're contributing to your community and in your profession that a lot of folks don't get to maybe ever or certainly until later on in their career. You know, I think also his journey into leadership and the lessons learned there of being patient. And we see this a lot with highly productive people. They struggle so much with succeeding through others. And the reason is, is because they're highly productive people. And yet what he's realized is that succeeding through others is actually slower initially. But ultimately, the impact is far greater than anything that you could do on your own. I would encourage our listeners, whether you move into leadership or not, go take leadership training. Plug into as much leadership training as you can get your hands on. I guarantee you it will help you in your business. Yeah, without a doubt. He shared some of the challenges of that journey of going from being a peer with people to leading them and some of the conversations that were necessary there and pulling the group together to win together or fail together. And that that was a real possibility and kind of influencing them in a new way. And I love also one of the things he shared about, you know, he's seen some different cycles in the real estate industry based on his time in in real estate. And he had a great quote, right? He said, the movie is the same. The characters just change. We think of a cyclical market or a cyclical industry like the real estate kind of like that. I think that's really sage advice, as you would say, in that we can kind of predict what will happen. Maybe not when or by how much, but the movie's the same. So we have a lot of realtors that are listening to this podcast and in the industry that are going to be the new characters in the same old movie. And of course, Lewis has been party to that. And I think that's really good advice. And he also asked a really powerful question, Bruce. At one point in his career, when things were, were kind of going sideways, he said, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? Yes. And I hope that people write that down. I certainly did, because when things get really challenging, sometimes we can feel afraid. You, you don't have to call it fear. You could call it whatever you want. But when we feel that way, that would be a really powerful question to focus our mind and our energy into the things we can control. Well, and that's exactly right. I mean, that situation he had no control over. It happened to him. <laughs> and I, I think it's pretty interesting. I love that little uh, analogy of his mentor, right? I might eat 12 shrimp or I might eat nine shrimp, but I'm going to eat shrimp, right? <laughs> and I think, yeah. you know, that's the truth of it, right? Every year is not guaranteed to be better than the year before. We will have better years and, and not so good a years, but you've got to figure out how to deal with that. The humility that comes with having been, as he said, on eight winning teams, eight number one teams over the course of his 28-year career, to know that, okay, I'm not on that team anymore. I'm going over. We're in a rebuilding phase. We're going to go and do it again. 
Next week's guest is Brenda Noons of Noons Group Real Estate with Keller Williams Eastside in Kirkland, Washington. We'll see you next week on The Real Look. This episode was produced by Marissa Frost. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Thanks for listening to The Real Look. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.